Hello, my friends, and welcome to Traeger Method Podcast, episode number 42. This episode is a conversation between myself, your host, Jason Traeger, and Fernando Cruz Jr., a.k.a. Fernie. Fernie's been in many bands, but the band we're talking about today is Run For Your Fucking Life, a band that was uh, active between 94 and 2001, based down in Chula Vista, South San Diego, down there by San Ysidro, by the border. Fernie tells us about that. It was cool to talk to him, get a feel for San Diego. After I was gone, I was already up in the Bay Area by this point. He started going to shows around 88. It's interesting to hear about that era of San Diego, punk. Talk a lot about TJ, Tijuana. Bands like Discordia, who run for your fucking life, played with a lot. Solucion Mortal comes up. Luis Juarena, who I spoke with. And pre, uh, spoke about legendary, now late, Luis Huareña, who was um, the big mover and shaker in TJ Punk. We talk about him. He's mentioned. I, so I spoke with, when I spoke with Chris Chacon of uh, Chris BCT, as he is known, in episode 22, we talked a lot about TJ in that episode. Luis came up then. He's come up a few times, actually, in prior conversations. The world lost Luis back in 2004. We remember Luis in this episode, and we remember Run For Your Fucking Life's singer, Jason Whedon. Jason died almost two years ago now. Fernie tells us about him. He was a connector amongst many people. The scene introduced a lot of people to one another, one of those people who helped make the scene, and he was a very intense character. We hear stories about him and what it was like to maintain a band that was, by all accounts, pretty crazy. Pretty wild, self-destructive band, it sounds like. But they made very intense music that was born out of that attitude, that style. Might have curbed some of what they accomplished, but at the same time, that was part of the intensity. They burned bright, and they burned out. But they did leave some really killer recorded music. Speaking of which, there is a reissue of Run For Your Fucking Life self-titled LP coming out. It's going to be released on Jason Whedon's birthday later this month. I'll talk a little more about that at the end of the episode after our conversation. And of course, there will be links in the show notes where you can pre-order the record and get your hands on some other goodies that are coming out along with that re-release, reissue. Fernando's a cool guy, and I really enjoyed speaking with him. He actually lived up here. He he told me that he... um, Lived in Portland between 2005 and 2009, I believe. So, uh, and he knew Aaron Yankee, who was a couple guests ago. He did some shows at uh, KBU where she was working. So, there's a lot of connections here. We're all, you know, you're getting this west coast up to Portland, down to San Diego, from one border to the north border, south border to north border. It's all connected. You see these webs, this mycelium of. community woven through this whole coast that's currently on fire and drying up as we speak. But the community isn't. The community is staying damp. It is interesting how uh, these summers now feel there's always an apocalypse. I mean, I love summer. The older I get, the more I love warm weather. I love uh, sun and the feel of just wearing shorts and 
Hawaiian shirts, my particular style, Aloha shirts. But now there is always this tinge of apocalypse every summer. We had the record-breaking historic heat wave a couple weeks ago, which has left all the trees singed. A lot of leaves curled up and brown. A lot of the piney trees have turned red on one side, green on the other. It's not, it's not usual. It is unusual. It's new. A few years from now, it probably won't seem new. It'll seem like, well, it's always been that way. The green trees turn red on one side in the summer. It didn't used to be, okay? I just want to note that. Read recently that salmon might be extinct in a few years because of the warming waters where they spawn before they go out to the ocean. Biologists estimate that a billion aquatic creatures died in the Pacific Northwest during our recent mega heat wave. Not the one that was this weekend, but the one two weekends ago. Portland has been fortunate. We have not gotten the smoke from the bootleg fire in Southern Oregon, the biggest one in the country. Still raging. It did make, the smoke did make its way to the East Coast blanketed New York City in unhealthy air. You're welcome. We didn't do it, though. Alone, you know, the Oregonians, we did it together as a human race. What do you do in the face of climate catastrophe? I don't know if you're like me. It's always in the background at all times. If it's not in the foreground of my mind, it's in the background of my mind at all times. I make art. I'm an artist. And as an artist, I make artifacts, objects that that I send into time, essentially. As a fan of art, art history, a follower, fan, appreciator of art history, you can't help but think in historical terms when you make art. You know, where does this fit in? Where does this stack up? What will it mean to somebody in a future world? I remember around 2010, I was painting oil paintings obsessively the way I do. And uh, I put aside my my practice. I packed up my studio, put everything in a storage unit at one point and started doing stand-up comedy. And I remember you know, part of the thinking in that was in my mind, I was like, I want to do an art form that exists right now and right now only. It's just about the moment between people here and now. And part of the thinking in my it was like, why make paintings that are just going to be destroyed as the society dis- destroys itself and, and civilization crumbles in the near future? Why would that be a preferred medium in oil painting? You know, you got it. You make them thinking, oh, this will be appreciated. Maybe if it survives, it could be appreciated a hundred years from now, five hundred years. You know, I mean, art. I mean, some of the best paintings ever made were made in you know the 1500s. Go back to the cave paintings, and you're talking about 30,000 years ago. Not that people painting in caves were thinking about art history, of course. Um, they lived in a non-historic time. You ever seen that movie, The uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams by Werner Herzog? I hope I'm remembering this right. I remember uh, some part of it that really made an impact on me where he said that you know they did carbon dating on these cave paintings in Europe and uh, determined that they were painted over the course of thousands of years. Maybe I can't remember exactly what it was, but many, many thousands of years. 
which implies, of course, that the civilization then was so stable, so unchanging, that for thousands of years, people would go with charcoal into these caves and paint images of animals and spirits and various things. It's a stability that is unimaginable to a person who's lived in the time frame that I have, or that you have, we have. Like, imagine living in a way that's basically the same way your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents lived. It's unimaginable. Think about this podcast. We're talking about stuff, you know, sometimes that happened 40 years ago. Punk rock shit. You know, we used to put things in the mail, use a photocopier to make little zines that we would you know, send each other and trade at shows that we'd have to find out about on flyers nailed to, you know, stapled to a telephone pole. You know, to a kid growing up today, it's like another planet, another world of media, what have you. Climate change, climate catastrophe. For years, it was kind of like, oh, it's always coming up, you know, it'll be when we're really old, just before we die, is kind of the belief. That's when we'll really feel it. That's sort of my sense of things. I mean, many people probably live that way. But now it's like, oh, it's here. Boom. Trying to imagine life five years from now. I can't do it. I mean, impossible. What will it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like we're on a rocket ship. We're on a blue origin <laughs> blasting off like Bezos into total unknown, unimaginable future. So what do you do? You stop having kids. Do you stop making art? Do you give up? Do you, do you fall into, do you just embrace total denial, live in complete fantasy? Do you just, have everything be sad and depressed and on some level and all, all beautiful things. I mean, how do you look at, do you think like, well, we've always had death, a death haunted world. I mean, the sun's going to go out at some point, no matter what we have now, it's going to end on a personal level, on a societal, civilizational, special species uh, level. You know, I mean, the whole thing's going to, it's all, it's baked into reality death. You know, in punk rock, my friends and I, we always favored the positive side of things, the unity in the scene. Brian Walsby and I talked about that last episode. But I also always loved the really negative stuff. I mean, negative approach was like my favorite band in many ways when I was a kid. Because it's cathartic, you know, part of it is like, let's just let's just get to the real thing. The world is, you know, hypocritical. It's, well, I mean, I don't need to, to, you know, it's destructive. It's idiotic beyond beliefs. Um, You know, I don't need to delineate any of that for anybody because you all know. And there's something very cathartic about just embracing a totally negative. (laughs) I mean, Fernie talks about that, their band, Run For Your Fucking Life. He's like, you know, we weren't so much political. It's just kind of negative. And you think, well, why would anybody like that? Why would anybody want to hear from some band that's negative, self-destructive, doing hard drugs and slashing themselves on stage? You think, well, that's just grim. Who needs it? But, you know, there is catharsis in that. There's always been dark art for a reason. It can help. 
you don't want that, you don't want that to be the only thing, but it can help make you feel not so alone and make you feel not so crazy for, you know, seeing the world as it actually is. The truth of it is, you know, it is falling apart as it grows. Death is baked into life. I mean, life survives by killing and eating itself. I think we're just going to have bright, sunny pop songs. Of course not. There's a reason on the right wing, you know, there's always that kind of thing of like, we just want to be optimistic. We want to look forward to the future of growth. And we don't like these negative Nellies saying things are bad and that America has issues and problems. We don't want to, because they want lies. It's all about lies. Let's lie to one another and agree that we're going to lie and let's hate people who tell the truth. It's, it's, it's an element in that kind of mindset. Things I loved the most about punk as a kid was that it seemed to be honest. It wasn't trying to fit into a niche in the market. It was just raw. And that's what appealed to me whether it was being quote-unquote positive or negative. How do you find hope in this world, though? Maybe there's hope in giving up hope. <laughs> or maybe there's a, you know, some kind of a solution and not depending on hope, like, oh, I hope it's this way, I hope it's that way. Well, no, just take action now to make your immediate life and the world around you a little better for yourself and others. Maybe that's the best we can do. How do you do that? Well, start by not being a selfish asshole. Another solution I've always embraced is to live interdimensionally, to understand that this world, quote unquote, uh, everyday waking, you know, so-called consensus reality, which doesn't seem to be much of a consensus at all, really, that this uh, waking life, material the world of physics, that this is the supreme reality, the only true one besides like death, you know, the afterlife state, you know, some people, many people believe in something like that. But the thing that I see is like, it's always interdimensional. I mean, I've taken psychedelic drugs and been to other dimensions. I've, you know, had lucid dreams. I had a lucid dream last night. Last night I had a lucid dream where I was floating in the air, showing off to a crowd of people showing that I can float above the ground for you know, as long as I want to. And I remember asking them, this is just last night. I remember asking like, you know, doesn't, you know, do you feel like you're in a dream? I was asking the crowd like, you know, cause I can do this. Doesn't it make you think like maybe reality is actually a dream. And they didn't say anything, but they were all like looking at each other like, oh, okay, this is weird. And then at one point I, I decided to show off and I thought, okay, I'm going to shoot up like 20 feet into the air to really show them. I said, now watch this. And then I didn't, I wasn't able to, to shoot up 20 feet in the air. I couldn't, you know, I just stayed like three feet above the ground. And then I, I sunk down a little lower so that I was just like a few inches off the ground, still floating, you know, it's impressive, but you know, the people uh, around me, and this is, a, this is a lucid dream I had last night. The people around me started just you know, they, they started, their attention started to drift because I could only float a few inches above the ground. And I was getting a little frustrated, like, come on, like, it's still special. I'm floating for minutes, you know. You shouldn't be able to do this. But they were like, eh, who cares? 
It's not that special. It's like Martin Sprouse and I talked about in an episode, a few episodes ago about the UFO thing. Like, why, why aren't we paying more attention to these UFO revelations that have come out? And the conclusion we came to was like, our world is so weird now and so crazy. And we've seen so many amazing things on, you know, digital uh, manipulation of, of reality. And, and reality has just gone so haywire that, you know, it's just not that impressive. Blurry photos of things in the sky and stories of seeing crafts doing wild things just not that amazing you know once you've played video games all day or taken dmt you know if if i was suddenly able to float a few inches off the ground and that's all i could do with it it would be a big story for a little while but then you know people go who cares what's the big deal the guy can float a few inches above the ground so what reality's not you know physics aren't what we thought it was on to the next thing What, what can i get out of it does it make my life better Does it allow me to quit my job at Cricket Wireless? Does it pay my rent? No. All right, well, on to the next thing. We have an incredible ability to adjust to new realities. And we're going to be doing a lot of that in the near future and in the present, actually. Well, I don't know where I'm heading with all this. I don't have a uh, big thesis that I'm delivering with with this talk. I'm just expressing uh, what's been going on in my mind because it's a typical West Coast summer now where everything falls apart and burns and the world is flooding where it's not burning, etc. It's just something I wanted to talk about, all right? Another thing I would like very much to speak about is supporting this podcast. If you would like to do so, you can through the Anchor app or you can also just send me money. That's what happened recently. Listener Julie B, I would like to give a major shout out to her. She sent me cash in the mail a lot of cash for me, a lot of cash. I was kind of blown away, honestly. She more than doubled my total take so far doing this podcast in one envelope. Incredibly generous. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me, Julie B, and to all my other new supporters. I appreciate all of you, new and old, of course. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, I would like to say something in the corrections corner. A few episodes ago, I can't remember what the conversation was, but maybe it was Tony Rettman. I can't remember. But I I said something about uh, being on tour with Seven Seconds in the 80s and playing at a theater in Detroit. And and a band tore a deer apart on stage. And I credited the band Life Sentence. Of course, it was not Life Sentence that did this. They were cool guys, loved by many. And they would never do that. It was Boom and the Legion of Doom from, uh, I believe they're from Lansing, Michigan. Life Sentences from Chicago. Two totally different bands. Life Sentence played on that bill. It was not them who tore the deer apart. Of course, it was Boom and the Legion of Doom. And maybe they didn't hit the deer. I think one of the guys worked at a, like, deer render or, you know, some kind of a, I don't know, taxidermy or something like that. So anyways, I wanted to clear that up. Sorry, Life Sentence. You're good guys. Everybody knows that life sentence sticker. It's on Pete Kramiak's guitar, I believe, back in the day of verbal assault. And on many, many shirts and whatnot. Life sentence, a well-respected band. Sorry for tarnishing your name. Okay. Um, you know, in my conversation today with Fernie, Fernando Cruz Jr. of Run for Your Fucking Life, there are some audio elements I had to, it was all messed up. 
had to do a lot of adjusting. My signal was super low. His was normal. I had to, you know, mess with that toy with it. So you're going to hear my voice sort of drop out a little and come back in and, and whatever. Just don't let it bother you. His voice is very clear. Get to hear what he says. And I think I did a pretty good job evening things out. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Fernando Cruz Jr. of Run For Your Fucking Life as much as I enjoyed making it. Here is my conversation with Fernie. Fernando, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. (laughs) What what part of San Diego are you in? So I'm in Chula Vista. So I was born and raised in the South Bay. (laughs) Nice. What year were you born? Uh, 1979. What year did you get into punk or did you discover punk? Ah, let's see. So I was the youngest of three siblings or so four of us total. And I had two brothers that were musicians growing up. Um, they, you know, they played in bands in high school. Uh, nothing too crazy. But they kind of got me into the music thing when I was, I don't know, probably in like the late 80s. Um, and in like the early nineties is when I started finding like minor threat, um, Fugazi was something that I really got into super young. Um, but minor threat, the subhumans, those are kind of like the two main bands that I, that I got started with that I found after getting into music from my brothers who are more like. Motley Crue, Metalheads, you know, Scorpions, all that stuff. So um, I would say like probably early 90s, because I know like when I was in middle school, I was starting to play music. I got a drum set when I was 12 and just started banging away and trying to play as fast as I could. So early 90s is when I got into it uh, on my own. And how were you finding out about music? If your brothers were listening to Crew and Rat and stuff, what were, what was your <laughs> who, who did introduce you to it? Because this is pre-internet, right? I mean, yeah, definitely pre-internet. That's that was me all growing up. So I think what it was more, it was more um, being around them, you know. And so I'd see like some of their friends come by, and they'd be listening to different things. I also got into some friends. Uh, started meeting friends in middle school that were more into music instead of sports like I was. So I was kind of always in between those two things. Uh, and then uh, I think someone introduced me to like Minor Threat and was like, you know, you should check this out if you like the like the metal stuff. My sister was also way into like Morsi and The Cure and I got into that as well. So I think with all those interactions, like I was wearing a Cure shirt. I remember when I was 12, 13, got made fun of you know, like the normal stuff in school. Um, But I met a friend that like introduced me to Minor Threat. I got way into that. And then a little later, you know, then I met more friends who were more just into punk. A lot of the Tijuana punks as well really helped me. Like growing up in San Diego, as you would know, you know, Tijuana is such a close, close niche area. It's kind of like we're we're living together. I had a lot of friends because I went to school in the South Bay where the, um, a lot of the kids from Mexico would come across, right? Um, and that's why I met like a couple actual like punk rock kids who got me into a lot of stuff. That's when I got introduced to a lot of the UK stuff. Um, and then I just got so into it. And, you know, I just started Maximum Rock and Roll, ordering records, 
uh, all that good stuff by the early 90s. I'm doing all that mail order, um, cool stuff like that. And then trying to go check out like local shows, local bands. Um, and, and that's kind of how it, it got going on for reals. But more, more than likely than just like meeting like a punk kid who introduced me to that record. So the TJ punks introduced you to Brit punk. Yeah, yeah. They got me into like subhumans. They got me into like the addicts. Um, that was always huge with them. Down yeah, down. yeah. I always and my thing is with this is because I have a pretty big connection with with the Tijuana punks. Like we made a good crew, and then I started a, pre, a band with them that I was in for like twelve years called Boom Clot from San Diego. We're both from San Diego and Tijuana, and uh, they were um, they were in other bands called Discordia before, who were a pretty big TJ band. Cracknio. That was a pretty big TJ band. But I always notice that with TJ, I feel like it's like 10 years apart. So it's like, whatever we're into, like 10 years later, it'll be really big down there. Um, and obviously, there's the kids who know everything and stuff like that. But yeah, they got me into that stuff, like Exploited, different stuff like that, GBH. So a lot of the UK stuff. But then also a lot of, I, then we started getting into more stuff like, that were touring through San Diego, a lot of the Bay Area bands I got into um, because of them. But yeah, we had we had a big connection, and, and I still do have a connection with the Tijuana punk scene and all that. I feel like it's a it's a great part of being part of San Diego. Oh yeah, for sure. Did, yeah. did the TJ punks like? Do they remember, or were there people who knew like Solución Mortal and bands like that? Oh yeah, 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 definitely Solución Mortal. Um, that's always been a big one, right? They were like one of the early ones. Um, a lot of my friends, um, I kind of like with the bands and people that I hung around with, I was always the youngest. So like, you know, there was a lot of kids telling me about um, a lot of the shows that happened at Iguanas. It was just like right after my time, right? But Solución Mortal was always a band that came up. They're still even hanging around right now uh, at times. But yeah, my friends would talk to me about them. I think they would play shows with them. Um, uh, I saw them play often, you know, back then and, and a little later opening for some bigger bands that would come into town. Uh, but yeah, definitely. So Son Mortal was a band that was, that was brought up to me <laughs> and introduced. I asked Fernando if he ever met Luis Huareña, king of TJ Punk. Before he passed? I did, actually. I did. I actually met Luis a few times and I have a lot of close friends who were who were really close with him right and and the whole Tijuana no band I actually have friends who play with them right now when they do some some reunion stuff um but yeah he was a cool dude man I remember meeting him and just being like he was always super nice um I remember I ran into him at a bar in San Diego one time and we just sat there and and just talked about TJ and at that point, I was in that band, Boom Cloud, who was doing pretty good in TJ. And he was just telling me about, like, kind of was giving me, like, advice about stuff and about the punk rockers in TJ and, and then mixing it with, like, San Diego and all that stuff. But, yeah, he was a super cool guy. And then a, a few, like, a year later I find, um, is when he passed away. So I was kind of stoked that I was able to actually, because I knew him. I knew him in passing. And it was just cool to actually, like, sit down and talk to him for a while, right? Yeah. Especially before he passed. Yeah, legend. Yeah, Wereña. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's he'll always be known in TJ and his band and and just him. He did so much stuff for like that scene down there and and in San Diego. 
Oh yeah, he's huge. His footprint yeah. is big. What about San Diego bands from the eighties? Did did kids down there where did like Battalion of Saints and stuff still have? A oh yeah, and yeah, legendary bands. Yeah, Battalion of Saints is one of the big ones, right? I mean, like the TJ kids loved that. Yeah. Um, that there, that's one of the bands that they really looked up to, and and that we did too. Also, like growing up, right when I got into like punk and then finding out about the local bands the first one that i found out was like the zeros because i'm from the oh, south yeah. bay chula vista right yeah but then battalion of saint saints was the band that we were like man this band is like ripping this is like awesome hardcore this is the stuff we like right fast it's aggressive political good lyrics so but i think battalion of saints was that band that we all could like agree to as being like an awesome band from san diego representing like and the TJ kids knew it just as well. So yeah, that what that's a great band. <laughs> so when you first started going to shows in San Diego, what bands were the big local bands uh, you know, that you would have seen, like your first shows? Yeah. So I'm thinking like when I first started going, I remember I saw like Drive Like Jehu Super when I was young. Um it was a kind of like when they were ending, Rocket was starting. Um, so saw them. Um, when it came to like punk bands, like, uh, I saw heroin play before they broke up, um, was kind of like, I kind of caught the end of all that scene. Right. Um, amenity, uh, unbroken, um, a lot of bands like that, uh, kind of just at the end of their whole, of their whole deals when I was coming in. Uh, so then also there was Chicken Farm, which was the band that I had a lot of friends and connections to, um, was kind of like the band that like our friends and us looked up to, right? We were like, that that was our, in our neighborhood. They were from like our area where we grew up down in South Bay. Um, like we're south of Chula Vista, actually, right? We're we're more like off of Palm Avenue down there. So it was like San Ysidro. So we looked up to them. And then any offshoot bands that they had after that, um, including uh, the band, my band, Run For Your Fucking Life, had members of that. But um, really, it was that and, and just a lot of like the cool local stuff that was kind of brewing up at that time. Um, I don't know, like Swing Kids was one band that was doing pretty good. Um, and then there was a lot, right? There was a lot of bands coming up, but those were kind of like the classic bands that we were kind of like catching the end of their whole thing and their whole scene in San Diego. Um, so I was glad that I was old enough to see that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So you started uh, a band pretty soon after you started going to shows. When did run for your fucking life start? I mean, yeah. The nineties. Yeah. So I started a band in high school with a friend from TJ who actually him and his mom lived with me and my mom, like his mom's got, uh, our parents got together cause my, it was just me and my mom. And um, her, his mom had a house and my mom was trying to go move out on her own. So it was just going to be me and her. And they talked because she was from TJ. She's like, I need him to go to school in San Diego. Could he stay with you? You could stay in this house. So we started living together. And so obviously we became more like brothers, me and this buddy of mine. And so we started playing. I played drums already. He played guitar. So, you know, we started just like a band just to, just to mess around. We had different names. I don't even know. What, I think the last name we ended up with was like something like Serial. But we played a, a Halloween show at someone's house where like all the guys from Chicken Farm, their new bands, 
uh, were playing, they had a band called Los Cagados, and the singer was this guy, Albert, who was a singer from Chicken Farm, Beto. And uh, we played that show, and Los Cagados played, and they were like, they were awesome. Like, I, like we would see them, and we were like, man, those guys are awesome. Like, they've been playing in bands before. And after the show we played, the singer in my band told me that they had asked if he wanted to play bass and I wanted to play drums because they were moving on from their rhythm section. So I was like, dude, I'm totally down, right? So I joined them. That man started going and doing its thing. And what ended up happening is we had everyone in the band besides the singer and me was in Run For Your Fucking Life by that point. The bass player, the singer, the guitar player. So our singer left. He left to start another project. And so they all just looked at me and they're like, do you want to just play and run for your fucking life now? And we're like, okay. So we started it kind of like back up. But to begin, it was like the original band started in 94 and it had completely different members. It kind of switched over. A couple people went in and out. um, And then they had kind of like the nucleus and they recorded a seven inch. But by that point, I was already playing the other band. They came to my house before they recorded that seven inch and borrowed my drums to actually record because they didn't even have a drum set. My buddy Jeff at the time. So they used my drum. So I was kind of involved in the beginning like that. And then the drummer moved to Texas and the band kind of went on hiatus until we started it back up. Uh, And then probably about like six months to a year after we did that, the drummer moved back and I switched to guitar. This was about like 97, 98. And then that's when the band really kind of just we took off, we kept that same lineup. And then that's when we started touring and did the, the LP uh, and all that good stuff. So that's kind of the story on that from my end. Um, I know on their end, it's a little different just because there was a couple lineup changes. Like the original drummer wasn't in it. The original singer, like they weren't in it. So we all kind of had our way how we came together as one. And then we actually took off after that. So were you, you were like how old, like in your early 20s or just out of high school? No, yeah, I was out of high school. I remember playing shows in Los Cagados. We'd play uh, The Velvet and like uh, the announcer would be like, all right, the first band will be Los Cagados because the drummer has to go to high school tomorrow. <laughs> and so I was playing like when I was like 16, 17. And yeah, I was super young. And every, all the other kids were in the band were like in their, you know, like mid 20s already so i was always the youngest one yeah. um but yeah i think when i joined i was like just out of high school in like late 90s because i graduated in 97 so it was like i remember i was in my first semester at san diego state in 97 when i joined that band i see <laughs> so what was the scene like in terms of where were shows at you yeah know, like in my era of san diego is like you know rented halls mostly yeah um, yeah what, what were the and all ages <clears throat> typically you know there weren't that many there weren't really many places yeah 21 and over what was the scene like in terms of shows were they house parties mostly or what were the venues so the venues um for the most part the che cafe was kind of like the biggest one yeah that kind of became became our like home away from home during like our heyday when we were playing a bunch we were easily playing there once sometimes twice a month um and playing with a lot of cool bands coming through so the che cafe was major uh there was small little bars that would um have shows you know like the like the one that i said the velvet would have shows uh another major place for, that i remember and we used to practice there we'd have shows there was uh the union and beach warehouse uh, our buddy chris squire he owned this huge or not owned rented this huge warehouse down in downtown uh, off of union and beach 
so that that's where that name came from. But I mean, bands like Blackheart Procession, Rocket filmed a video there. A bunch of bands practiced and played shows there. Um, and it was like, I remember that was like the first year I was in the band. That's where we played our first show with that new lineup with me on guitar. We had played a show with me on drums um, prior to that there that our drummer saw us play for the first time before he joined. So a lot of things happened at Union and Beach. There was a lot of cool things going on there. Um, but basically, it was like the Che Cafe, some small bars like the Velvet, uh, Union and Beach. And yeah, like you said, there was house shows more than before. So we'd play like house parties um, and then just random little bars. But the big spot for us was um, Che Cafe and Union Beach and then Tijuana as well. Tijuana was always somewhere where we can go and play a bar and play a rad punk show. Um, and, and we got in pretty early on as a band down there and kind of made brothers with a with another band, Discordia from TJ, where they'd come up and play. We'd go down there and play. And it was awesome. What about going north? Did you play shows in L.A. or O.C. Yeah. very often? Yeah, so our band, which is weird, is like we were pretty destructive. Like, so we were we were a pretty destructive bunch, like all Your of reputation. us. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it basically, it followed us pretty well. But um, we, we would go play L.A. We'd go play like the PCH was a club we'd play. The Smell in L.A. Sure. Uh, we played... Um, uh, well, the, what's the other place? Coos uh, Cafe was a place that was kind of like the Che up there. Um, and then just random little spots in L.A. We'd play. We played the Bay Area. You know, we played Gilman Street multiple times. A um, couple other places. And then we did one serious, like, two and a half week tour up the West Coast. Uh, and, and that was our, basically, us going north and touring, like, the four or five years we were a band. <laughs> Um, we had other options, like we had a tour set up to tour like the U.S. with the Locust and their drummer quit right before. And we just did, we couldn't really just go on our own with the headliner out. So that kind of fell through. And then we booked that West Coast. So um, but yeah, we had some spots that we could play up north, uh, but um, we really played a lot locally, I feel like. So what was the San Diego, the scene like? Was it divided? Like, were there, you know, a, was there like a straight edge scene that that everybody dressed that way? And then the more of a cross punk scene? And, you know, was it pretty divided up that way? You know, yeah, obviously, yep. in my day, it was all one thing. You know, there wasn't enough yeah. of it to have subsects. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so what scene were, you guys were a part of, like, the more like political? I mean, your music obviously is thrash, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, old school punk. So what yeah. was the scene like that you played with? And was there tension between those scenes or they just. So, yeah, honestly, like, I feel like because we didn't look like spiky punks, but we played like thrash, you know, we really didn't like Jason, our singer, he didn't really sing too much like political stuff. It was more just dark, uh, negative lyrics. Right. So it wasn't really political. Um and there was a pretty big straight edge scene using the Che Cafe at the time, right? Like the people running the Che were straight edge. There was a pretty big straight edge scene. So we looked out and we kind of got in all of them. Like, so with us, we were just like, for some reason, the straight edge kids, like, were attracted to us from the beginning. And so we had, like, these kids who call themselves the youth crew would come to our shows and, <laughs> and do their thing, right? 
but then like the total punks would come too, like the the spiky haired crusty punks totally liked us as well because we play with bands that were more that style anyways as well um and we kind of felt that more you know that was we were more just like a straight up punk band that's what we wanted to do um but we're from Chula Vista where like straight edge was huge. So because we were from Chula Vista, I feel like a lot of the Chula Vista straight edge kids like that were unbroken fans. And then growing up after that kind of gravitated to us f- because we were like pro Chula Vista as well. Um, but yeah, I feel like we were able to, we were able to mix in with a lot of different crowds and music, even when like the scene got kind of hipster and scenester. We'd even have a mix of those kids like coming and watching us play and uh, and stuff. So we cut, we lucked out, and then in, in TJ was just everyone was like just more like punk, crusty punk, spiky punk. Yeah. So um, yeah, so it was it was cool. We 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 were able to do that. Like we played a lot of cool straight edge shows. Uh, there was this band called Good Clean Fun. They were from I think from Jersey. Good Clean Fun, and they uh, completely straight edge band. And I remember we somehow got on a bill with them and they liked us so much. And they were pretty big that when they would they come back, they would ask for us to open for them. It was such a weird mix. Um, but then we would play with like bigger, like of like the hardcore bands at the time. It's been Tragedy. When they started coming down, any of their offshoot bands from Ashes Rise, we would play with them. A few times we took them down to Mexico. Uh, and then it just evolved, right? We would be able to play a lot of, cool shows with cool bands coming into town because of who we played with. And just because, like I said, we, we had a good mix of people. I mean, we played from like murder city devils and at the drive-in, we got to open up those shows and play those shows. So it was, it was really weird. Like we got, we had a big mix even, but you listen to us and we're like nothing like those bands, right? We're, we're just straight up like a thrash punk band. So, um, but it was cool. We, we were able to do a lot with the band at the time and, and mix in with a lot of the scenes. Yeah, well, you guys were a very good thrash punk band. <laughs> Thanks. Difference, you know? <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So, so you guys um, had this this reputation for destruction. What was the yeah. vibe like amongst the members? You seemed really close, and you had this very familial kind of bond. Oh, yeah. Was there so, a lot of drugs and alcohol involved? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, it reminded me of like looking back at like the 80s punk bands that were just like self-destructive. It was like that. It was like, I mean, we all had habits. We all got pretty bad and dark places, you know, and it was it was pretty intense. But we were like a family. And then we had our crew of friends like we had like a lot of like a pretty strong crew of younger kids and kids our age that we would all hang out. at. We had a house in North Park. It's still there and actually got passed down from friends. I think it's still with friends now, but it was when North Park was still uh, shady. You know, it wasn't what it is now. And we lived right behind that Vons and we had this little house and uh, yeah, on 30th Street right there. And man, it was a good time. But yeah, it was very, like you said, we were like a family. We were like, so we fight like brothers, you know, where like it was pretty, get pretty intense sometimes. And it was, either because we were drinking too much or there was too much drugs involved. I mean, it was, it was pretty destructive. And so people got, people would hear about that and it would get passed on. And so we kind of got that reputation of being super negative and, you know, like 
super destructive, like self-destructive. Like we were super cool with everyone. We didn't really mess with people like that. You know, we didn't beat up people or we weren't, we weren't like that. Um, but it was, it was a, a, a pretty crazy time for a lot of us. Um, and, uh, but it was us being young and, and just having fun, you know, like I was again, younger than everyone, but they were only like, they were like three, four years older than me. And they were, we, we were just riding that wave of just kind of like self-destruction and having fun and doing things our own way. Um, very DIY for like five years, more than five years. Right. I mean, that's pretty yeah. good if you're yeah. that rough. We, yeah, it was, it, it, it did last more than I thought it would have lasted. And towards the end, you know, we were better. A lot of like, we were living with girlfriends. We weren't all sharing the same house anymore, you know, and, and then finally our drummer moved away and, and that time it was done. But yeah, it was a fun time, but it was very self-destructive. Like people know, uh, I mean, I'm not, I, I won't speak for others, but for myself, it was like the drug, the hard drugs were kind of what made things kind of like a roller coaster through it. And it, and you know what, it did affect us being able to tour more. It did affect us doing more as a band instead of, I mean, I feel like if we were really on it, we could have really taken off, toured, you know, at that time in like, what is that, late 90s, early 2000s, touring was getting pretty big. You know, you can go out to Europe, you can go to Japan. We were seeing friends bands do it and we we couldn't do it just because of, of how we were. So there was that that part when I look back, it's like, yeah, we we missed out on a chance with the band, but... I don't think the band would have sounded or, or been the way it was if we didn't have that whole lifestyle with it. <laughs> yeah, built into it. Yeah. Yep. What, what was the scene like in San Diego in terms of like fighting and violence? Was it, was, was that common at shows or was it pretty much the scene pretty tight or, or the was scene was yeah. Nazi skinheads and shit like that still? So from what I've heard and also like from before, it was nothing like how it was before, right? Where there was like Nazis and fighting and stuff like that, that uh, San Diego could be pretty rough back then, right? I mean, you would know with all of that. I've heard, I've heard that it was that, that you could, it was pretty rough at times. Um, with us, I mean, it was really, there's a lot of people like trying to do the whole unity thing, you know? So I feel like there wasn't a lot of that, but it, it still came around. I remember we were playing a show at the Aztec Bowl. Um, so that bowling alley in North Park, they, we started having shows there. That was a cool venue, actually, That when, when I think about it. And some skinheads came out. And we ended up, all the punks fought the skinheads right there. Kind of just like that traditional punk skinhead story. <laughs> and yeah, everyone got involved. And the punks were fighting the skinheads. And people were getting hit with bats and stuff. And so, like, that stuff happened there'd be like random fights between people. Um, but it wasn't as, I don't think it was as, as bad as um, it used to be, or it could have been right. I mean, yeah. I think there was a lot of people coming together. Like I said, there was different scenes coming together. Obviously they'd get kind of riled up at times, but a lot of times people either didn't hang out together or if they were all together, everyone was there together to, to like support the band or the music. Yeah. Yeah. So when you started, it's pre-internet, but like by the time yeah. you guys ended, it was, it's 2004, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th then at that point, the internet was kind of the thing or just starting. I mean, YouTube, what, yeah. 2005 or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you started, were you promoting shows and stuff with just flyers? I mean, how did people find out about shows? It was still kind of the 80s style. 
Yeah, it was totally 80s style, man. We were definitely doing flyers for everything. Like, you had to have a flyer. Um, there are specific spots where we could put it up, um, where, like, the punk kids went. One of the big ones was that kind of was big for us was Pokey's, like the restaurant downtown. So our senior worked there. Uh, our friends worked there. The owner, we knew Rafa pretty well. So we actually played like a couple. Of, I, I saw Run For Your Fucking Life play before I joined one of the first anniversary shows for, for Pokey's, like the one-year anniversary. So everyone went there if they were vegetarian or vegan, would go to Pokey's back then. So we put flyers there all the time. You know, that was a good spot. The Che Cafe always printed out flyers for them. Off the record, we'd always put flyers up there. That's where we knew how we would go to check a flyer. So, yeah, it was like flyers and word of mouth, really. Yeah. Um, and and then, yeah, I, I think as soon as it kind of started getting into the Internet towards the end with that band, it was easier to promote stuff, right? People would at least post stuff. Um I feel like the reader also kind of helped or like magazines. There was a local magazine that wasn't the reader. I can't think of the name of right now, but it's kind of similar, but it would post like the shows at the Che, it would post the shows at the bars uh, and different things like that. So um, I really think it was word of mouth and flyers though were like the main thing still at that time prior to the internet really taking off. Yeah, and you're still putting out records. So you said off the record yep. we're still going. Yep. Was Lou's still going up in yep. County? Yeah. Yep. Lou's records. We had off the record. Um, my the drummer in my band, he started a band. Called, uh, sorry, a record uh, a record store called Spastic Plastic, and it was right by the Empire Club, which became a club where we started playing. See, now I'm remembering more venues as I'm yeah. going along. We actually played Pokies for our record release, but this. Club Empire Club. It was right off of 30th Street and El Cajon, basically almost on the corner. And um, they, my buddy, first Rob Moran from Unbroken opened a record store there. Um, and then he closed it down. And my, my, our drummer and his girlfriend at the time opened up one called Spastic Plastic. And that's where we would practice as well. And so there was that record store. They had shows. So that was super cool. You know, like young kids, we could do it all ages there. Um, and, but yeah, lose off the record, that record store, Spastic Plastic. And then I'm trying to think of what other record stores started coming about about that time. I know off the record was probably, and lose were like the biggest ones that we would go to. Yeah, the same way in the eighties. That's what yeah. <laughs> record stores were so good. Yeah, yeah. Always, I would, I oh, mean, I remember going into off the record and pulling up the uh, like the used records and just finding gold in there all the time, like yeah. cheap, cheap stuff. And I just be like, man, like seven inches and and LPs and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it was always uh, and then lose was the same way. We drive up there knowing that we were going to come back with something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So tell me about Jason, your yeah. late singer. So Jason. Was our lead singer. Yeah, Jason Whedon. So Jason, unfortunately, passed away a couple years ago. Um, I think his two-year anniversary was on in July. Um, and it was July 1st. And it, what it was is was he, it kind of, it was, it surprised everyone uh, because no, no one was expecting it. Um, he had been battling with the same addictions and issues that we all had when we were young. Um, 
but his seemed to continue. So, um, but we'd all check in with him. You know, he was, he was kind of a loner. He hung out. He stayed at his house. You know, he really wouldn't leave his house in Chula Vista. Um, but we all, we talked all the time. We all kept in touch. Um, and then one day we just found out that he passed away. And um, it was weird because the drummer, my buddy Jeff, who him and Jason were best friends, our drummer and our singer. And Jeff had come into town with his family. Uh, and we went down to Mexico to Tijuana just to like hang out. We had a couple other friends in town. And our friend Mary, who was visiting, she says, hey, that guy that just walked by, doesn't that look like Jason? And we both looked. And again, we're in, we're in Tijuana. We're not even standing. We look. Yeah. And it was Jason. And we're like, dude, what's up, man? What are you doing? He's like, oh, man. He's like, I think I, he said something like he was at the dentist or something, when she would go down there and get his teeth worked on. But so we saw him there and it was kind of a surprise because my buddy Jeff was like, I'm not going to really reach out to him. It's only if he reaches out to me. He knows I'm here. Um, plus, I have my family or whatever. But so we got to see him. We hung out um, for like 15 minutes. We, we were like talking about meeting up the next day. We took a picture together. He got to meet Jeff's family. And so it was pretty rad to see him. And then within like a month or two is when he passed away. So that's kind of like the last time we all saw him, even me living in town. Um, it was like, like the last time we saw him. And um, yeah, his passing, it really affected a lot of people because he was super close to a lot of people. It was kind of, he had a lot of friends in San Diego. He played in other bands uh, with Chris Squire. He played with my buddy Josh in this band called Sunnyside that was more like pop punk from San Diego. Um, and they were kind of, I don't know if they were going to get back together, but they had just ended recently too. So he was still kind of doing his thing, but it, there had been like that last six months to a year, he had kind of fallen back to just like kind of being at home uh, and not really hanging out with us. So it really just, it really affected all of us pretty hard, right? Like when we found out we had a memorial at the live wire for him where we were all able to get together and talk about him. And it, it was a, it was an awesome day. We got to raise some money for his uncle who he lived with and his family met his like brother. But yeah, man, it was like losing like a family member to us. Right. Because we were all super close. We always, after the connection we made as a band, all four of us were super close and other people that were like close to the band also. Like we all, we made a pretty good bond that we still talk to each other and do things like that. So losing him was kind of like losing like the head or like the leader, like, right. So Voltron, the head, or I always think like that. Right. But um, yeah, super sad. He's been gone for two years. Uh, we just kind of celebrated uh, July 1st was his two year anniversary. And, and so now we're, we're basically working on doing things to kind of remember Jason and, and, it's really easy to do it with like the band, you know, because um, he was, he was right there. He was like the, the basically the best part of the band and, and the vocalist. And so lead singer. So it really makes it easier for us to kind of do stuff as the band and to remember him now that he's gone. Yeah. He seemed like a real connector, like a person who sort of yeah. a connection between a lot of friends. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he knew so everyone. In, in, in yeah. Teams, you know, to, yeah. Yeah, definitely. He was definitely, like I said, he, people loved him. He, he had that aura where like people would talk to him and, and like, 
you you felt like he he was really there and understanding. I know I felt that a lot when talking to him or when I first met him, uh, and then we became super close um, after that. But yeah, it's 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 a sad thing. But now it's like now two years down the road, still sad, still hurts. But now it's more like just remembering him and trying to keep him positive um, and doing that. And so I feel like that's what we're working on now. I want to hear about that. Tell me, do you have any yeah. stories from the band days of Jason? <laughs> oh yeah. So, um, oh yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot. So, um, I remember <laughs> that there was this one show we played at the PCH and this was like a club off of PCH down in, in like the Wilmington. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a cool club. They, they had a, a bunch of rad punk shows back then. Um, and so we played, on a new year's day so i would i think it was like either 99 or 2001 and it was like after new year's january 1st a day show like an all-day festival that they were having so after partying all night (laughs) we got in a van yeah and drove up and we brought a bunch of friends i think another friend's band was playing locally a fan of sixtia they were a san diego band that we were friends with and so we all drove down there and the show was a good show, but Jason, we're playing, and we're, it's it's a good show. People are people are digging it, having a good time. And Jason, because you could drink in there, he throws a bottle down, right, and he breaks it, and he pulls the the punk singer thing move where he grabs it. And I thought he was gonna like at first when he threw it, I thought he was gonna like jump on it because I'd seen him do stuff like that, like and try to roll around in it, but he grabs it. And he fucking puts it to his neck and just slices and it just starts instantly bleeding. And so we're playing and I'm trying not to pay too much attention, but I'm like, dude, this, this guy, he's going to kill himself. Like, like who knows where it hit it? Like, and you could see it went deep immediately because it just started just like gushing. Oh my God. And we're like, oh no. So it was our last song we're playing. And during the last part, it was kind of like a break, not a breakdown, but a part where he doesn't sing. He goes to the wall and he writes RFYFL in his blood on the state, on the wall of the club behind the drummer. And then we finish and it was like, thank you. Good night. And he just walks off and there's this bloody thing. And we're just all like, oh, what? We walk out to the fan and like we finally cleaned it off. And and seriously, it looked like he had missed his jugular by like, mi- like the smallest amount, dude. He had just missed it. Like you can see like the vein and then the cut right next to it. But we were like, fuck this, dude. I'm like, we're taking you to the hospital, man. We have to get it checked out. Right. Like, and he's like, nope, nope. And so he refused. So we drove back. And I remember wherever he was staying, they were pissed. They're like, why'd you guys let him do this? And we're like, man, we don't, we have no control. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's one story that was pretty bad. Like that got pretty bad. But I mean, with Jason, like, I mean, he would do so many, so many things. And a lot of times, like I would hear about it cause I was playing or not paying attention. Uh, but he was a really good front man, right? He, he kept the crowd super like into it. He would be out there with them. Um, and so, but yeah, but he was a crazy guy. He, he was, he was all about the performance. I will say that. (laughs) Sacrifice his life. Yeah, I guess so, man. Yeah. It was, it was pretty intense. Jesus. Yeah. What kind of projects do you have coming up, uh, with the band? Yeah. So 
you know, obviously we had about like three reunion shows before Jason passed away since we officially broke up um, in the early 2000s. And those were great, right? I mean, we had a good time doing those. Uh, and so we had talked about maybe doing another one, right? And it had been a while. And then when, obviously when Jason passed, it was no longer something we can do. But we did like some memorial shirts for him when he passed away. We're like, hey, let's do a, let's do a run for your fucking life shirt. And what we can do is put like Jason on it. So like in memory of Jason passing, we only really had one shirt ever. And it was like during a tour and they sold out quick. And like, I guess like it's like people have asked us, right? And I'm like, no, we don't have any more. We, we like, we haven't had shirts since like we had them originally, yeah. but so we do this and it worked out great. And we sold a bunch and we donated the money to, uh, we donated it to a local um, South Bay little league because he was all into baseball. Mm. So we're like, this will be cool in his memory, right? Something get people some shirts and it'll just be cool. Uh, so when we did that, people started asking about like, you guys should repress the LP. You guys should repress the LP. So our, we did two recordings. The seven inch um, was recorded and released on Hopscotch Records, which did like the first Murder City Devils, another band called Death Wish Kids from Seattle, mm -hmm. who I think they later became, yeah, Murder City Devils, some of those members, and also um, a couple other bands. Um, they, yeah, so they pulled out that, that little label. It was the second record they did was that. Um, they were friends with the, we, well, we all were friends with that label owners. Um, so they put out the seven inch and then we did an LP on a label from um, the East Coast called Gloom Records, right? From uh, New York. And Gloom was our buddy Nathan that we met. And when we recorded it, we tried, we made demo tapes or not demos, but recording the tapes and we sent it out to a bunch of labels. And we got like some responses like, man, I wish, but I'm on tour right now and I'm not going to be putting anything out. Um, I know locally we had some labels go like, you know what, not really our type, but let me get it to some people who can. And that's kind of what happened with 3-1-G was one of the local labels. Uh, Justin, our friend Justin uh, Pearson, he had that label and he was like, let me talk to some other people. So he kind of told it to this, our buddy, uh, or this guy, uh, Nate from New York, who ran Gloom Records, Albany, New York. And uh, he was in town. Um, and then also the singer from this band, Charles Bronson, Mark McCoy, same thing. Hey, you should check this out. So then he kind of got a hold of us and was like, man, I'd be totally interested in doing this. And it worked out great. He put out the, the record, the LP, and then he put out a CD with everything, the, the seven inch and the LP. Um, and so it was awesome and it was so awesome to work with him and we got it out. Um, so when we did these shirts, um, people were asking like, Hey, what about the LP going to repress them? And so we thought like, Hey, you know, this might be a good idea. So I talked to my, my buddy, Sal, who now is part owner of three, one G records. He reaches out to me and he's like, Hey man, I'll do it. Like kind of joking. And I was like, are you serious? Like, would you be really serious about doing this? And he's like, yeah, man, I definitely would. So I, he's all, talk to the band and we'll, and we'll figure it out. So talk to the band. Obviously, they're all about it because kind of something that we can do for Jason. The record's been out of print for almost 20 years. And uh, it came out in early, like 2001, I think the record came out. So 20 years since it's come out. Um, 
And so we agreed to do it. We did new artwork, kind of, we basically kept the same artwork, but just made it black and white. And then we added like some stuff in memory of Jason, right? A different insert, a different back. And we repressed it. And so now we're doing 500, I think it's like somewhere like 500 copies, half in red and half in clear. Uh, and so we, uh, we put them out for pre-order and yeah, they're going to be on 31G Records now. Um, and so the pre-order just started in July. Um, and so we're pretty excited about it. And the record is actually going to come out on Jason Whedon's birthday. So oh, September 16th, it just worked out that way that we were able to get that set up with them and they were, they worked with us. So that's what we're doing right now. We're pretty excited about it. Like we never thought we were going to do something like this. It's actually brought us together. Danny, he's a bass player. Jeff is the drummer and myself have been talking a lot, you know, working on the record stuff, kind of like when we were younger and it's, it's, it's been super fun and, and exciting to do. And, and just listening to that stuff, like we recorded with Gar Wood he recorded us at, at his house. And man, I love the recording he did of us. I feel like he did so good on that record. Um, and it's pretty exciting to have someone like him record our record, right? He was super cool to work with. And so we're, we're, we're definitely super excited about re-releasing re it. Tell people what other bands he recorded. So Gar Wood, I mean, what bands? <laughs> He's been and recorded in so many bands, right? Tanner, Hot Snake. Um, fuck, I can't, uh, Beehive in the Barracudas. I mean, Gar is is pretty is a is a is a very established musician and and kind of just badass all around in San Diego. Nice. Um, I'm not sure what other bands he's recorded. I don't know if he's really recording anymore. Um, but I know he's still rocking with like bands and stuff like that. And he's super good. Night Marchers, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, classic. Yep, yep. So this record, the pre-orders are open now. Yeah, the pre-orders are open now on 31g.com. Cool. I'll um, links to all that, of course, in the show notes. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah, and they're going to be available for a couple months. We will have some extra goodies for people who pre-order it. The pre-order's been doing well. So um, I'm not sure. I don't think we'll shut it down, but it, it's doing pretty good. So we're pretty excited about it already. Um, and then we have another something new coming out that we're going to do for everyone who gets a pre-order. And, and I guess I could drop it here for the first time Drop it, and, and, and we could go from there. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to give out, we found a box of original seven inches with oh. no covers. Oh, wow. And so what we did is we made new covers um, and they'll be ready by the time the record's out. And we're going to randomly select about, I think it's like 40 or 50 that we have and give them out to 40 or 50 people who randomly pre-order the record. Oh, so they'll cool. get an extra seven inch with a new cover. It'll be totally numbered special edition. We're going to do sh um, hopefully more shirts, stickers, different things like that to throw in. But yeah, we're totally excited about it. And uh, we should be releasing that seven inch cover here this week, hopefully, and, oh. and kind of make that public, but you hear, you heard it here first. <laughs> okay. So we got 50 or so. Yep. Original seven inches are going to be yep. random lottery style. Correct. So get those pre-orders. Just for the pre-orders. Correct. Nice. Correct. That sounds so. fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. So, so um, what other music yeah. are you making nowadays? So for a long time, you know, I, I during the end of Run For Your Life, I, I joined or started that band Boom Club from Tijuana. We played for probably 
for a long time. I actually moved away and came back and actually started playing with them again. But we're we're no longer playing. Uh, there's talks that the rest of the band may get back together, but I'm I'm kind of just moving on from it. Um, so I've done that. Um, I had a, a solo kind of band that I started and then got a whole band called Cruise Radical. Mm-hmm. And we put out an LP. Um, Tom, he was the bass player from Night Marchers. He played bass. Um, my buddy Patrick, who's in Vina Cava, he played drums. And my uh, guitarist named Tito played guitar, as well as Thaddeus from um, a lot of local bands here as well. He played, and his label, Cave Punk, he played guitar at the end. So I did that, and then um, we were kind of starting some, uh, We start, I started a new band called Agonista with the drummer from uh, Boom Clot. We put out a 10-inch EP and a demo. We started playing some shows, and then the pandemic hit, uh, yeah. right? And so it kind of put everything on pause for now. Um, I'm not really sure what's going to happen because some other band members have gone on to do other things. And so we're kind of just like in limbo right now. So we'll see. Uh, and then besides that, um, I, I just been doing stuff with myself and, and working on some new projects. So hopefully that'll come out soon. <laughs> nice. We look forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Really good to talk to you, Fernando. Yeah. Thank you so much. We really appreciate, I really appreciate the time and, and talking to you too. I love the uh, podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll have links to all this stuff, and we look forward to hearing that record and to uh, seeing what you do in the future. All right, man. Thank you so much. I said during the intro that I would leave some notes here at the end, but now I'm thinking about it. Fernie pretty much covered everything. So get one of those, uh, get that reissue and, uh, get on that, uh, pre-order list and maybe you'll get one of the 40 or 57 inches that they found that stash of seven inches. Good luck on that. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Fernie for speaking with me. We'll see you next week. Yeah.